0: Welcome to the Head to Heal podcast, where you'll go head over heels learning about how the body and the brain work together to either feed disease or fight it. I'm your host, Jordana Sade, certified holistic nutritionist and founder of the Mindful Clinic. With a background in nutrition, behavioral neuropsychology, and hypnosis, I'm going to walk you through the root cause of your symptoms and disordered behaviors. The body has an innate ability to heal. No one is destined for illness, and most, if not all, disorders can be reversed. Come with me as we develop a new understanding of how you can use your head to heal and truly thrive. Hey, guys welcome to another episode of the head to heal podcast. It's been a little while because there have been quite a few changes here at the mindful clinic. So this entire month, uh, we've been moving. So I have a nice little office now and, um, you know, things are growing and it's really exciting. And then at the end of this month, I'm getting married. So <laughs> it's been a little bit crazy. Uh, so thank you guys for bearing with me, but I promise that this episode will not disappoint. Um, this episode today, we're going to be talking about anxiety and we're going to be looking at it from a holistic perspective, from a neuropsychology perspective, or from a neuroscience perspective, and we're also going to be looking at it from a functional medicine perspective. So without further ado, let's dive right in. I want to first of all introduce myself. I'm Jordana, a certified holistic nutritionist with a background in behavioral psychology. I struggled my whole life with obesity, addictions, depression, and chronic fatigue, and I have dedicated my entire career to develop a deep understanding of how to restore health with any disease. I want to remind you that I am not a medical doctor and the information I share with you is for the purpose of educating you to take charge of your own health. And you should always follow up with your physician before beginning any new health regime. Okay, let's dive in. So first I'm going to tell you about my experience with anxiety. So for those of you who know me intimately, uh, you'll know my best friend. She's also my maid of honor named Scarlett. Uh, if you're listening to this, sorry. And my best friend has really always had anxiety, like, always growing up, I just remember her talking about feeling anxious and not wanting to do anything. And growing up, I truly had no idea what that meant. I thought that she was just being really sensitive and kind of a baby. And so she struggled with social anxiety and I basically had to lie to get her out of the house to do anything. And as I got older, I began to understand more about anxiety and I saw how it showed up in my own life. Though I wasn't necessarily overly socially anxious, um, or not to the point where I would like avoid situations of social gatherings, I have bitten my nails and literally self-mutilated myself ever since I like ever since I've had nails. Um, I'm also a skin picker, so um, this is actually a real psychology, um, a real anxiety disorder. It's called excoriation disorder, um, and I'm a nervous eater, as you guys know. Uh, so. And this really stems from chronic worry, which I now understand are all forms of anxiety. So I actually was a very anxious child. And if you've been following along with me, you'll know that I had a very traumatic childhood, a lot of bullying, a lot of self-rejection. And I managed those emotions by eating or biting my nails or picking my skin. And I just didn't really realize it was anxiety because I wasn't having like panic attacks or I, st- or I didn't have the desire to like self-isolate until I was about 25. So this is after I had birth to my son and I went through this like very traumatic birth. He was an emergency C-section and I've truly never been so scared my whole life. Like he had the cord wrapped around his neck and um, yeah, it was just terrifying. This is the first surgery I've ever had. I couldn't even hold him afterwards. I was literally frozen in panic. Um, And ever since then, I started to get these panic attacks and I couldn't really calm down my nervous system. So something else that contributed to the increased anxiety was that um, at this point in time, I was desperately trying to lose the weight from the birth. So I was like double dosing my ADHD meds so I wouldn't be hungry, uh, which is essentially speed by the way. And it it also does really enhance your metabolism, but it will burn it out at the same time. And I was also double scooping, highly caffeinated pre-workouts and then going on these intensive runs. So my nervous system was just hella fired up at all times. I was literally running a mile a minute And eventually these neuronal pathways started to dig a deeper and deeper groove into the proverbial forest in my brain that even without the double dose of adrenaline, I would still feel stimulated. So I begin to have like a terror response to normal situations, or essentially my body would perceive fear when it wasn't there. And this is kind of the root of anxiety. It's the nervous system being on high alert and perceiving danger when it's not there. Now, anxiety is directly related to the sympathetic nervous system and the fight or flight response for a reminder the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight so when we are in danger versus like the parasympathetic nervous system which is like rest and digest when we are calming down And the body doesn't know the difference at all between various types of stress. So it's the same chemical reaction in the body, whether you're late for work or you're running from a predator, literally does not know the difference between like financial stress, emotional stress, or like I'm going to die stress. It's the same response. I want to also remind you that anxiety is arguably the most adaptive response that we have without it. We literally would not have survived as a species. So there's a very physical response that happens when we release this fight or flight from the sympathetic nervous system. So blood is going to rush to the extremities or pupils will dilate, digestion ceases, your breathing becomes more shallow and your heart rate increases. Now the fight or flight response is one of the reasons why we have survived as a species and without it, it's, a comp- and it's accompanying hormones like cortisol, epinephrine, adrenaline, no epinephrine. we would literally die. So I think cortisol has this really bad reputation, but if we didn't have cortisol, we would actually die. And when you are somebody who's having a heart attack, they you'll often see, or if you've seen it on TV, if somebody's having a heart attack, they will inject the heart with a needle and that needle is just straight up cortisol. Anxiety and it's related disorders are basically an overstimulation or an over exaggeration of this response. It's perceiving danger when danger is not in sight. Okay, let's break down anxiety a little bit more. So anxiety is an increasingly more common problem as, as the years continue. And this may be because more people are talking about it now. So for example, like when I was growing up, anxiety was not something that was talked about very much in my social group, I guess. My family didn't really talk about it. Mental health then also too just wasn't it wasn't in the forefront where it is now. So it could just be that many people weren't talking about it, but they still struggled with anxiety, or it could be related to epigenetics. So epigenetics is basically how our genetic code changes depending on the environment that we're in. And obviously these environmental factors that we're exposed to, especially just the lifestyle that we live in like Western society, um, is very (laughs) high-strung, we'll call it. Um, but as we move through this episode, you understand just how many like odd factors can actually contribute to developing anxiety. So I think that in the past we kind of related anxiety to maybe just, um, a worry child or not having, um, not having the proper attachment style, but now that there's been so much research done and you'll find that the root of anxiety could be quite surprising. So anxiety can be either acute or it can be chronic. So acute anxiety disorder usually just manifests itself as panic attacks, which is an instance where the body's natural fight or flight reaction occurs in a very extreme way at the wrong time. Now, this is a very complex and involuntary physiological response in which the body prepares itself to deal with an emergency situation. So this is kind of what started to happen to me is my adrenal fatigue began to develop because I was like double dosing everything and running so hard, just like trying to get off that weight. Um, I truly had like, so basically as my adrenal system started to depress, the body just felt like it was in danger all the time because it was like unable to keep up with the demand of my day and everything was so uh, time bound and it had to be done now. It was like, it was very um, intense. And so what started to happen is that I would feel these panic attacks and I would literally had no idea what the fuck was going on. Like it just felt like I was dying randomly. A wave would come over my body and it was like I was going to faint. It was I felt like there was no oxygen going up to my brain. And I honestly thought it was an issue with my heart, like because I was running so much or maybe because I was taking the stimulants, but it it like my toes and fingers begin to tingle. It was just the the weirdest feeling and it would happen at the most random time. So I didn't realize that this was anxiety. So I went to my doctor and I was like, listen, there's something wrong with my heart. She's like, okay, great. Let's do a stress. Well, not great, but she's like, let's do a stress test. Everything came back normal. And I'm like, there's seriously something wrong here. She's like, hey, we're going to, we'll do another stress test. And then I was working for a doctor at the time, like um, Dr. Muhammad Abraham. And I was like, listen, I need to see a cardiologist. Nobody's listening to me, but like, this is really not right. Every I used to be able to run like 10, 20K. Now I can't even walk around the block without having this like manic p- attacks. And like to the point where I would actually faint But that's also because my adrenal system was quite weak. So anyways, after the fifth cardiologist that I saw that they're like, nothing's wrong with your heart, honey. Like I had a a pot syndrome, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which basically just means that like my heart rate would be super irregular. um, And that is another symptom of adrenal fatigue. But this all started from like panic attack and anxiety and worry, right? It wasn't actually like the adrenal fatigue was for me constantly worrying and pushing myself so hard. So what I'm trying to get at here is that anxiety is really a symptom of severe stress. Stress is the underlying cause of anxiety. This stress, of course, can be emotional stress, like what I was doing to myself, or physical stress. So it could be like a workout, um, or perhaps you get into a car accident or something, or psychological stress. And it can be in the form of trauma, again, emotional or physical. But a lot of people develop anxiety or panic disorder after an event like a car crash or somebody dying. But sometimes people develop it develop it from smaller things like bullying or negative self-talk. So um, if we go back to kind of my, my best friend here, she just never really had the proper guidance, I think, or um, a strong relationship with her family that made her feel super confident in herself. So when she walked into any social situation, there was just a lot of anxiety of how people would perceive her, or see her. And um, yeah, that was the thing that... So then there was the worry cycle, right? That negative self-talk. And this is all... Stress that can lead to anxiety. So, stress actually causes the body to just produce more adrenal hormones like adrenaline. So, what happens is, like, let's say we have this worry thought, we go into a social situation and we're like, I wonder what people are thinking about me. Literally, your brain is going to like release adrenaline because that thought is a threat to your survival. It's, are people going to love me, is what you're saying. And if you go back to the first or second episode when we talk about the brain and the body, if we feel like we're going to lose our attachment which is basically like we're not going to be accepted by society we're not going to be loved and cared for it is a threat to our survival so you're going to have this this worry thought it could also just be i'm going to be late for work and like what's underlying that thought is i'm going to lose my job or um you know i'm not going to get paid properly which again is threat to survival right So you have this worry thought, and there's going to be an increase in adrenaline. So your body's going to release adrenaline, and that's what's really responsible for the physical symptoms here, like short, rapid breathing, tense muscles, and an increased heart rate. It's even going to change the composition of the blood, making the blood more susceptible to clotting. So when you actually are in danger, this is all really important, right? Like this type of response is super important. But when it happens involuntarily, when danger is not relevant, it can be terrifying. That's why I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like I'm dying. Um, And this disorder, disorder can also produce cumulative effects like muscle aches or pains, which is where fibromyalgia comes in. Decreased libido is a huge one um insomnia menstrual changes and then also just feelings of death and dying so that was my thing i was just like convinced i was dying Okay. So Dr. James bulk writes about panic disorders in multiple research studies stating that the panic attacks are often random and are usually triggered by some form of stress. So this stress can be conscious. Like you can consciously be thinking I'm going to be late for work or unconscious. So we have all these thoughts in the subconscious unconscious mind that we're literally not even aware of. And those thoughts can actually trigger the stress response. They can also be triggered by food intolerances, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, and hypoglycemia, so blood sugar dysregulation, deficiencies, toxins in the environment, pathogens. That's a huge one. And stimulants like coffee and tea. So when I was going through this whole adrenal fatigue, panic attack area, like, I could not even have green tea. Everything, like, even chocolate. Would, I would get like these headaches and feel like I was going to faint, and it would bring on panic attacks later on during the day. So obviously conscious and unconscious thoughts and beliefs to play a role. And I mentioned that earlier. Anxiety or panic disorder can very easily translate to a disorder called agoraphobia, which basically is a fear of outside spaces. And it's not just like you're afraid of of the grass outside. It's literally like you are afraid to go outside, to be away from your home or your comfort. You're afraid to be alone. And many people who suffer from anxiety disorder fear of being alone or visiting public places because they are afraid to have one of these attacks. I resonate with this so much because when I was experiencing this disorder, I was working at this place called Newtopia, which was, I was like a life coach there or something. Um, And it was about an hour and a half away. And as I was working there, I had to drive an hour and a half every single day in like traffic. And Basically it was terrifying like I was terrified to leave my house I never wanted to leave and I also never wanted to be away from Chris who's my my partner my husband The anticipation of having a panic attack in a public or far away from home makes it so much worse. And at the time, I didn't really believe that it was an anxiety or panic disorder. I just thought like I would get these waves, and it felt like I was dying. So I was like, it could happen anytime, anywhere, and I'm just going to die. But yeah, so anyways, the anticipation of having a panic attack in a public or far away but place from home makes it so much worse because it increases the anxiety of like, am I going to have it? Am I going to feel okay? So it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy here, right? You have the worry feeling of you you have the panic attack in public or every, every so often. And then when you're at home, you worry about having it. So it just like increases that response or the chance of that response. Anxiety disorder was really misunderstood for a long time. Where it was more considered a psychosomatic response, and we now know that panic attacks have a very biological cause and are often really a malfunction of brain chemistry, where the brain sends and receives false emergency signals. So hyperactivity in specific areas of the brain can cause the release of these, like these, um, uh, these chemicals like norepinephrine, which can create this panic response. And we're gonna get a little bit more into what would create that hyperactivity and in, in various parts of the brain. So that's like a cute anxiety the panic attacks and regular chronic anxiety is much more mild but it's equally debilitating um, where anxiety is more generalized and it's the and the intensity of the response is significantly blunted so this was kind of like my anxiety as a kid I didn't really recognize it as anxiety because I didn't feel like I was going to die I didn't feel like like anxious to be away from home or anything I actually was very social I liked being in social environments but I just had this worry this constant mental chatter of worry worry how people are going to perceive me what like what do i look like to other people a lot of it was just based on other people's thoughts perceiving me am i performing well enough here uh and so i would bite my nails and in this case you may feel chronically uneasy so there's usually excessive worry thoughts and mental chatter and these thoughts just kind of circulate through the consciousness or unconsciousness and it's possible to to develop social anxiety where being in the presence of other people can make you feel insecure or nervous. So the possibility is there that just wasn't the case for me as a kid. I would want to be in the in the public, but I just would bite my nails or like pick my skin when I came home to deal with the like stress of trying to basically hurt my own feelings in my own brain, like thinking that other people were saying things about me when they not they weren't necessarily. And the long-term effects of chronic anxiety are things like tension headaches chronic fatigue syndrome and then down the road increased risks of like chronic conditions like heart attack and stroke so this is like a serious disorder (laughs) so i'm really sorry scarlett so for all the years that i like made you come with me to do all these things in public that you super weren't comfortable with i totally get it now and i'm very sorry and so now let's break down some of the neurotransmitters and the nervous system connection so the specific neurotransmitters to mention here that relate to anxiety response are dopamine, glutamate, GABA, and serotonin. Again, there's so many more, including the hormones that are related, like the stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine. But these are the main players here. So dopamine is, we all know dopamine is a molecule of more. Like this is my favorite. I'm dopamine queen. I love dopamine. I can talk all day about dopamine. And I have before, so I'm not going to like beat the the horse with the stick if that's the saying anyways so dopamine is released in anticipation of a reward and the in- anticipation actually releases epinephrine which is going to drive us towards engaging in that specific behavior so this can actually feel like excitement or anxiety depending on how like regulated your nervous system is So for those of you who are emotional eaters, I'm gonna give you a scenario here so you can understand this, but have you ever planned on getting like one of your favorite treats and when you pull up to the bakery or the shop, you like actually feel anxiety or like excitement? So this is what I'm talking about. This is the dopamine response that actually releases epinephrine right before we're about to engage in this behavior and it's going to want to drive us towards the behavior. And then once the release of dopamine happens, we feel this like pleasureful moment, right? So even if you do feel a bit of anxiety, it's kind of blunted by the fact that now dopamine's being released and you're like, fuck, this tastes great, et cetera. Okay, we're going to talk about GABA now. So GABA is a neurotransmitter that is most closely related to relaxation. It is very calming for the nervous system and it's the opposite of glutamate, which is highly stimulating. So this is why monosodium glutamate or MSG is terrible for people with anxiety or ADHD because it's so stimulating. It's glutamate. And just by the way, like I think that we thought that MSG was kind of out of everything and because we went through that whole epidemic of, oh, it's so bad, and then people took it out. It's back in everything. Like even your favorite restaurants, regardless of the area of cuisine it is, like it's not just Asian cuisine that has MSG in everything. It's like in every restaurant now. And check your chips. The chips that you get like at, um, especially the ones at the dollar store, like, and sometimes, sometimes even the kettle chips, like they all have monosodium glutamate. So check those. That's why you want to continue to eat them because glutamate is so stimulating. So it's going to drive you towards that behavior. The next neurotransmitter I want to mention is serotonin. So serotonin is the happy hormone, and this is most often related to feelings of satiation. So in opposition of dopamine, where dopamine is the molecule of more, motivation, more and more and more, serotonin is the desire or no desire to do anything. So you are literally just content as you are. You're satiated and you're content, which would naturally reduce anxiety because there's no anticipation or motivation to do anything. So really balancing these hormones and understanding the neurochemistry is going to kind of be the baseline for reducing anxiety, Symptoms, but again like these neurotransmitters are released in response to often a thought or trigger So it's important to understand the neurotransmitters and like understand how the brain works and you can do things like take an SSRI or take a medication which is going to work specifically on the neurotransmitters But it's not really getting at the root cause so for now I just want you to understand what the neurotransmitters are but know that they are released in response to a trigger Which could be like a thought or um, a molecular chemical reaction or whatever it is so balancing them is like not as simple as let's just take this medication or let's just take this supplement so for example taking something like l-tyrosine is can increase the your production of dopamine but if which we actually wouldn't want to do here with anxiety we would definitely want to increase things like serotonin so let's say you're going to take 5-htp which is the precursor to serotonin that might not be the answer here because we have to understand where the trigger is right we don't necessarily want to create more serotonin it will definitely relieve the symptoms but it's not going to get to the root of the issue of why there's an imbalance in the first place so now let's talk about some of the root causes here so pathogens i mentioned this before and i can't emphasize this enough pathogens are a huge contributor to anxiety for so many reasons So pathogens refer to like chronic infections like parasites and Candida. And we talked in length about Candida in the last episode. So please just refer to that one. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, the pathogens can lead to anxiety in the following ways. So the first way is by compromising digestion. Most pathogens live in the intestines and the digestive supplementary organs like the liver and the gallbladder, which is going to compromise the ability to digest and absorb important nutrients that are required to calm the body down. So we're going to talk about the specific nutrients that are required to like regulate the nervous system in response to anxiety or ones that are beneficial for calming the nervous system. And if we can't digest the nutrients from our food and absorb them from the first place, of course, we're going to have an imbalance in the nervous system. We forget that, that like just in the same way as where if we're going to take protein to build muscle, like the nutrients that we extract from food create, the neurotransmitters and the hormones and the stuff that are in our brain. So the nervous system needs those nutrients just as much, if not more than our muscles do. The other thing is if uh, these pathogens are in the liver, which that is after we are exposed to these pathogens. So um, whether it's through like the most common place to get parasites is unwashed lettuce. So like everyone has them. Okay. Just FYI, it just depends on the ones that you have. But anyways, as soon as we're ingested or as soon as we're exposed to these parasites or these pathogens, whether it's candida or parasites or other viruses, it goes into our digestive tract first and foremost. If the immune system is weak, our body will allow them to proliferate. And then from the digestive system, the first place it goes to is the liver. Once they kind of hang out on the liver, it wreaks havoc on the rest of the body because the liver is where we like basically synthesize most of our nutrients it's also our detox organ. so if we're not able to detox toxins there's like more triggers in our blood um and we're unable to create most of the like create synthesize and activate a lot of our nutrients that feed the rest of the body so when they're in the liver and the gallbladder it's a big problem and then from the liver and the gallbladder they go to the ovaries and then eventually the brain and that's just how that's like the triangle of how parasites work but anyway so once they are in the if 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 we have parasites, they are compromising the digestion, and that's going to prevent us from absorbing specific nutrients to calm the body down. The second thing is they, these parasites or candida or any pathogen really actually steal and eat the nutrients and specifically drain the body from minerals specifically. And you'll know when we talk a little bit later on that minerals are so important for the stress response. Like minerals are the thing that we use up the most. That's why when people are highly stressed or like they're extremely active, you might notice that their bones and their teeth become a little bit weaker because the body's constantly trying to pull minerals to support their level of activity. And a lot of the minerals are also the electrolytes, right? So we're sweating a lot of them out. Like, you know, we have um, calcium, magnesium, potassium, like all of the electrolytes here. The third reason is these pathogens release toxic byproducts. So whenever they're releasing these like die off symptoms or they kind of like off gas. And you can refer back to the candida episode if you don't know what I'm talking about, but all pathogens like off gas and they release these toxic byproducts that now the body has to neutralize and excrete. And when we talk about like detoxing anything, the body has to basically take, there's like phase one and phase two liver detox. And there's certain nutrients that are required for either phase one or phase two detox. So the body now has to take minerals and nutrients that we have that could have been used for like a stress response or regulating the nervous system and it has to detox the stuff out of our body because it's dangerous like the stuff can't stay in our body right and then the fourth reason is just the detection of pathogens in the body from the nervous system will sound the alarm so what do i mean by this Basically, and again, we can refer back to the brain and the body, but when we think about our body and the experience that we go through, literally everything that we experience emotionally, physically, physiologically, psychologically, is because the nervous system tells us to. So if you were to walk on the street and bump your toe, you wouldn't feel that pain until the nervous system tells you to feel pain. So, what happens is we have the brain and the spinal cord, and all of these peripheral nerves that extend out from the spinal cord and sense things in our environment. Okay. So, as it's sensing things in our environment, it's going to sense something, it's going to send a message back up to the brain, and then the brain's going to make a decision and it's going to send a message back down and tell the body how to behave. So if we have all these pathogens and shit living inside of us, the nervous system is sensing them and it's like, hey, something's here that's not supposed to be. Sound the alarm. And then the nervous system's like, fuck, we got to get this shit out. And so it like is going to send a message back to the immune system or back down the vagus nerve, stimulate the immune system, do this, do that. So just the detection of having these pathogens in the body is stimulating enough for the nervous system. Again, this is the threat to our survival. It's the fight or flight response. So... For somebody who is dealing with like anxiety or panic attacks and there is no real root of it, you might want to think about pathogens. Is your body constantly, and all of this is happening in the autonomic nervous system, right? Like we're not aware of the body detecting any of this stuff. It just does it without us even thinking about it. So if these panic attacks are happening completely at random, this might be a place to look. The other connection here, the other kind of like root cause that's really interesting um, and I've been doing quite a bit of research in this one also because I'm interested in fitness and sports nutrition, but is the con- the connection between lactate or lactic acid or in pyruvic acid and oxygen. So one of the most significant biochemical disturbances not- noted in all people with anxiety or panic attacks are elevated blood levels of lactic acid. If you know what I'm talking about here, if you have a bit of a science background, you'd be like, what, why? (laughs) Like that, like, yeah, that's right. Like it's the same lactic acid that builds up after an intense workout. Specifically, it's the increase of lactic acid in relation to pyruvic acid. So pyruvic acid is basically just a byproduct of energy production, ATP production. And this is how it works. So let's take a look at this lactic conversion okay or lactate conversion so lactate is really just um the converted is a soluble form of lactic acid and it's the final breakdown of glucose so we produce lactic acid or lactate by taking glucose and breaking it down breaking down glucose specifically when there is a lack of oxygen so the muscles actually prefer shocker here. The muscles actually prefer fat as their main source of energy. When we're like going about our day, all this low level stuff that we do, just walking, whatever the body's actually, the muscles are going to prefer to use fat as their main source of energy. But when we exercise vigorously, there's a lack of oxygen in the body. So they no longer have the energy or time to convert fat to energy. So they are forced to use glucose as energy. So because most of the stuff that we do when we're exercising is like we are, it's an ana, anaerobic activity where there's going to be a lack of oxygen or anabolic activity sorry, where there's going to be a lack of oxygen the body's going to prefer glucose the byproduct of glucose metabolism is lactic acid or lactate so without adequate oxygen there's a buildup of lactic acid within the muscle which is what causes the muscle to fatigue and produces soreness after exercise with good circulation the lactic acid is removed from the muscle and transported to the liver where it then can be returned back to pyruvic acid or even glucose if needed So how does this relate to anxiety or like, I don't, this doesn't make sense, Jordana. So this is related to anxiety because people with anxiety have elevated blood lactate levels. So we know that there's a relationship here and a higher ratio of lactate compared to pyruvic acid, which is the important part. So, so much so that if that individual that has panic attacks or anxiety, if they were injected with lactic acid, it would trigger severe panic attacks. So if we zoom out for a second and we take a look at it from a non-exercise-related scope, what exactly is happening here? We're going to go back to pathogens, okay? Pathogens will double and triple the conversion of glucose to lactate because they also break down glucose and produce the final product, product of lactate, right? So like now we have all this lactic acid buildup that's like not even from exercise or whatever, it's like from pathogens, then we have lack of oxygen. So this is also going to happen like this conversion, this lactate or lactic acid buildup is also going to happen when there is a lack of oxygen. Typically people with anxiety are shallow breathers. We don't know if it's, be, if it's the chicken or the egg here, right? Are they shallow breathers because they have anxiety or does the shallow breathing elevate lactic acid levels leading to an anxiety disorder, which creates shallow breathing, etc.? The other thing to note here is high sugar diet so we may as well just get into this now but sugar is incredibly stimulating which will encourage the glutamate levels in the nervous system to perpetuate overstimulation it's also going to contribute to hypo or hyperglycemia which we know is one of the onset or triggers to panic attack episodes the fourth thing is over exercise and adrenal fatigue so this is kind of the area that i fell into where adrenaline, which is the the stress response, um, basically lives off glucose. Like adrenaline cannot use anything else. It has to happen so quickly. So converting fat to energy simply takes way too long and is too arduous a process. Glucose is always gonna be the first choice in the stress response. So adrenaline will literally burn glucose and leave the byproduct of lactic acid. And honestly, like even if there's no uh, glucose available, so let's say you're on a keto diet, your body in a stress, if you're, if you deal with stress or excessive worry, your body will break down protein and convert it to glucose just to make this reaction happen because we need to support now the stress levels of the body. And then also with over-exercising. So obviously, so too much lactic acid buildup, not enough rest time, too much adrenaline in the system. You're basically living on stress hormones at this point. This is also why, and I kind of just mentioned this, but this is also why diets that are too low in glucose can lead to adrenal fatigue or anxiety disorders because there just isn't enough glucose in the body to regularly use. And again, when I talk about glucose, I'm not talking about candy or sugar. I'm really talking about complex carbohydrates. So things like sweet potato, fruits, vegetables. So the body will literally break down muscle and convert it to glucose and convert... Obviously, it's going to break it down into amino acids, which can convert to glucose, and leaving the byproduct of lactate there. Speaking of diets, let's get into some of the food stuff because I'm a nutritionist, and obviously we have to talk about this. So with the food triggers, um, so obviously there's the sugar, and again, I don't mean complex carbohydrates. I really mean simple sugars and processed sugar. And then there's the stimulant, so this is like coffee tea even chocolate and sugars again a stimulant i'm sure you guys can understand why stimulants are not beneficial for anxiety at this point but a lot of it comes down to the stimulants increasing adrenaline which again uses glucose as energy and leaves lactate as a byproduct which creates muscle fatigue soreness and panic attacks now i'm going to get into the interesting stuff okay So the food intolerances, I've spoken before about the importance of food intolerance tests specifically for stubborn weight. I believe I did an episode on stubborn weight not too long ago, but I'll link it up. Um, but yeah, it's because it's co- these food intolerances are causing low level inflammation in the brain. So Dr. Paul Celadino is kind of the, um, the main neuroscientist here. He's a neuroscientist that theorized that all mental health disorders, like all of them, including PTSD, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, schizophrenia, bipolar, etc., cetera, and so on. And so on are all a result of brain inflammation. So how did this work? Well, we have this chemical in the brain, it's called fractalkin, and it's a special molecule in the brain that regulates the inflammatory response. So when when cortisol is chronically high, fractalkin will turn off and it's going to upregulate inflammatory markers in the brain and in other areas of the body. Food intolerances are considered a stressor for the body all inflammation is like if the immune system is like hey this shit's not supposed to be here it's going to cause inflammation sound the alarm Body's under attack threat to survival here we go stress response now we have mood altering food intolerances which are referred to as brain allergies and i've actually seen this happen both firsthand with my clients and in my family members and of course by reading the research So some people eat because they are depressed or anxious, while now we are discovering that some people feel depressed and anxious because of the brain sensitivity to the foods that they're eating. And food allergies can really masquerade as many emotional ills, like violent outbursts, suicidal thoughts, fatigue, irritability, anxiety, depression, ADHD tendencies, lack of motivation, lethargy, as well as things like headaches and digestive disturbances, of course. So Dr. Bernard Rimland, um, he's one of the main doctors here, and I believe he's from, uh, I wanna say Boston. Uh, I'll, I'll, again, I'll link that up, but uh, Dr. Bernard basically says, it's well known, like this is a quote from him, it is well known that allergies can affect membranes in the nasal cavities, lungs, and skin. It is not surprising then that the brain, which is the most intricate and biochemically complicated organ in the body, can also be affected by allergies. Another doctor, Dr. Barbara Solomon, says that body allergies and food allergies go hand-in-hand hand, and she talks about an account with her, with one of her 17-year-old patients who was referred to her for emotional disturbances and aggressive personality. So this, this patient of hers also had a number of environmental allergies, so she tested him for like 200 different foods and found that he was allergic or sensitive to 70 of them. And when they were removed, he was literally discharged by his psychiatrist because the aggressive personality literally no longer existed. And I've actually seen this one firsthand with a family member who is paranoid schizophrenic. And after eating meals with dairy and gluten, the bouts of aggression just significantly increased. And the anger too. It's just like they're extremely heightened and he's much more sensitive. Like anything will trigger him off. Whereas when we remove dairy and gluten and food dyes from the diet, he actually no longer needs his medications, which I think is really fantastic. It's like really incredible. This is also, I have to say this, but like this is also one of the connections between like diets and autism. Um, And I'm not going to get into this because it's too controversial and it's not the purpose of this episode but um there's a r- really large group of people who believe that autism can be at least managed by taking certain things out of the diet and i've seen i've read and seen so many accounts of this where and it's really the main things i'm going to tell you what the main triggers are now if you don't want to do a food intolerance test though i just suggest you do it but it's really when we take those main allergens out that when the brain information goes down the child can now process in process information so much quicker. Like if you can think about every single nerve that's in the nervous system, like every single neuron is covered by something called the myelin sheath. And what happens is we have a message and the message is like transmit from one neuron to the next. And it tells the body what to do. The message is the neurotransmitter. And so if there's brain inflammation, if all that shit's inflamed, we're not really receiving and sending messages properly. It's gonna get lost in there or it's not gonna send, it's gonna get cut off or whatever it is, right? So it makes sense and even especially with kids with ADHD, this is also very prevalent. So when I was dealing with my anxiety, the onset of my panic attacks were almost always related to food intolerances. And I had no idea that's why they were happening at such random times. And I was just like, I'm fucking dying because I'm not even thinking about something stressful. And like, I'm having this like crazy reaction. And the interesting thing is that I thought I was eating healthy, right? Like I cut out all dairy, all gluten from the diet, the top allergens anyways. And I was, I switched to like almond milk, everything and avocados, but I was reacting to them. And the nervous system was becoming inflamed and leading to more emotional disturbances And I can tell you hundreds of stories with clients who have mental health illnesses that clear up after removing their allergens. Like this is why I actually include it in the price of my mindful rehab program, because if I'm going to help you overcome any type of mental health disorder or addiction or or food disorder, I can't do that if you're ingesting things that you're intolerant to. It's going to significantly impact your motivation, your mood, your ability to like see into the future like it's going to keep you in that depressive cycle or enhance the anxiety and like we just don't need any of that shit it's a simple fix the last thing that I'm going to say about this is that allergies can affect different areas of the brain and different people. So especially if you have children, I would monitor their behavior before and after you give them things that are main intolerances. So it could be in the area of the hippocampus where, you know, memory recalls a lot slower. It can be in different areas where, you know, there, there's heightened agitation, or there's more, um, there's lack of impulse control if it's in the prefrontal cortex. So yeah, it's really interesting. And if you're an observer like me, I'm like a low level researcher, research my family um it's interesting to see like what the triggers are and then how that child is going to behave afterwards oh i should probably mention these two because i said that i would but the most common allergens are chocolate corn egg whites dairy mustard mustard seed most nuts wheat and yeast and in adults brewers yeast so that's like beer and wine as a side note most of these if not all of these also specifically feed pathogens like candida and parasites so it kind of gives you something to think about right it's like what's really causing the inflammation here is it the pathogens or is it the antibodies like we don't i i don't know the answer to that one day i'm sure the research will come out and figure it out you also may not always react. So don't rely on symptoms alone immediately after you have these things. I can feel it immediately after. Like I, I eat something that I'm intolerant to and I either get a headache or I feel a, a lot more lethargic or it increases cravings or like those are the the main things for me or the anxiety gets worse and I start to worry, which again is going to drive me more towards food. Um, and the reaction or the inflammation can actually happen like up to three days later. So there was this crazy story I heard from one of my teachers when we were, when I was in school studying nutrition, where she had this lady who was having like epileptic seizures and they literally couldn't figure it out at all. And it just turns out that like it, it actually came down to a food intolerance and it was literally red peppers and it was like a 72 hour reaction so like she would have red peppers and then 72 hours later she would have the seizure and so it's so hard to get get back to that root cause point right like who would have thought so when you do a test like this and you just know what your allergens are you can just cut them out of your diet and see how you feel I offer these tests in the clinic so you don't actually have to do the rehab program to get them. Um, so I can post a link in the show notes to book a consultation with me. The consultation's free. Um, and I can just order it for you. I actually don't at this point charge for it because it's already so expensive coming from the lab. So you just pay the price from the lab. And honestly there's not much to interpret on my part. Like if I was doing a hair, tissue mineral analysis or if I was doing like a dutch test then yeah there's a lot of work that goes into interpreting that but it's pretty simple you prick your finger you get the blood and there's a list like literally you get sent a report which is a list of foods that you are intolerant to one of the other main kind of underlying causes to the anxiety or at least one of the issues that perpetuates the anxiety cycle are nutritional deficiencies so this is re- really where like food psychology comes into play or where mental health and nutrition is very important this is kind of like where my journey began with food psychology was understanding the specific nutrients that relate to mental health and the nervous system so it's it's one of my favorite topics but and this is kind of where my true expertise really shines. It's with nutrition and mental health. And what I want to say first is that pretty much all mental illnesses can be relative to deficiencies or toxicities, even if it's trauma-based. So trauma will increase the need for more nutrients. Like the fight-or-flight response burns out these specific nutrients. So you have this traumatic event. And there, are, so when we think about the unconscious brain, I'm just going to take a step back for a second. When we think about the unconscious mind and the programming that we have in the subconscious, there are only three things that we can do to change that programming. So our subconscious program programming is developed from the third trimester when we're inside of our mother's womb up to the age of seven. So there, and, and that program literally stays with us forever. So with our conscious mind, we can say all we want, I want to lose weight. I want to get money. I want to get rich. I want to do whatever, but the body's on a completely different program. This is where like self-sabotage kind of um, falls in and where these Unconscious triggers for panic attacks and anxiety live, the worry, the mental chatter, it all lives in the unconscious or the subconscious programming. And one of the reasons that this is is because of trauma. So when we have a traumatic event, it's going to it encodes itself so deeply in the nervous system. If we want to change the subconscious programming, there are only three ways to do it. One of it, one of those ways is trauma. The other ways are repetition and hypnosis. But but when it comes to trauma, if there's an event that is so traumatic, it can literally change your programming from then on in a single instant. Versus with things like repetition and hypnosis, these are things that you need to repeat over and over again and then depend and, and be in specific brain states. So with hypnosis, it's like a theta state that you want to be in. I've kind of digressed a little bit, so I'm just gonna gonna circle back here. But when we have a traumatic situation, it that trauma event encodes itself very deeply in the nervous system, and it just runs. It runs on the program every day. So for the the traumatic event that happened to me is, or one of them anyways, is when I was like eight. I caught this kid in my class and tag, I had a crush on him and he was like, "Daddy caught me. Okay, remember that. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. That specific event, it coded itself so deeply in the nervous system so that for the rest of my life, I would hear unconsciously or subconsciously, remember when that kid called you fat? Don't get fat because fat equals like, you're not gonna be accepted. Nobody's gonna love you. You're unlovable. So like now, and then anytime I'd go in a social situation, do I look fat in this? Or do they think, <laughs> what are they saying about me? Oh, and then you feel so self-conscious about your own body. So and all of these worry thoughts these this mental chatter is going to increase things like cortisol adrenaline no because this is the fight-or-flight response it's a threat to your survival so the natural chemical reaction in the body that's going to be released is the fight-or-flight response now to produce the fight or the fight or flight response it requires specific nutrients all of those things are hormones right we don't just pull hormones out of thin air can't take blood from a stone if you will but like so you actually need those specific nutrients and when you are when we have this response on replay over and over and over again it basically like it it creates a deficiency because it's going to steal all of your nutrients and like i was saying you can't take blood from a stone so when we don't have any more that's when we really run into problems that's when we have adrenal fatigue um, sit-in or chronic fatigue syndrome So when we talk about this stress response or mental health in general and the specific nutrients, it's really the B vitamins that shine here. Pretty much every B vitamin, when deficient, is linked to a neurological symptom. And I'm gonna highlight the ones that are more specific to anxiety versus depression, because a lot of them are related to depression. So first, we need to understand the stress cycle. I've kind of talked to this a a, a lot in this episode, but I'm just going to reiterate. So emotional stress, whether it's like anxiety, grief, anger, or even like irrational fears, can deplete the body of specific nutrients, and many of which are critical for brain functions. Unless they are replaced, and I mean rapidly, and adequately, um, coping mechanisms are going to break down. So emotional problems will worsen, and the pattern is likely to repeat itself, dragging you into a downward spiral. When you are under stress, hormones are released, and in turn, it increases the speed of many functions and systems in the body. There's a higher demand for nutrients, and we lose nutrients much quicker when we are under stress. The stress may also drive you towards behaviors that can deplete more nutrients, for example, smoking. Oh my God, the amount of nutrients you need to detox the chemicals from smoking cigarettes. It's incredible. Like if, if the daily dose is a thousand IU of vitamin C, think like 20,000. Also alcohol. So some people drink when they're stressed. You also need nutrients, specifically B vitamins to detox alcohol. B3 is the key player here. Coffee. Again, that's a diuretic. Um, so you're peeing out a lot of the water-soluble nutrients. Um and again you also need to detox parts of coffee because coffee is one of the most heavily sprayed unless you're getting like super organic fair trade whatever they want to call it um there's a lot of detox that's involved in there so when we're detoxing things we're going to need all of the nutrients that are required for phase 1 and phase 2 liver detox and when I do an episode on the liver specifically because there's so much to say about it you'll know exactly what those nutrients are but like spoiler alert a lot of them are B vitamins the most important B vitamins for stress are B6 which is pyridoxine B12 cobalamin thiamine which is b1 niacin which is b3 folate um, and pantothenic acid which is b5 so let's talk about b6 first so b6 is required to produce literally every hormone but specifically um, it has a really big role in the production of tryptophan which converts to serotonin so you can't like i mentioned before you can't really feel anxiety if serotonin is present or if you're playing the like serotonin um, neuronal networks And serotonin is related to feelings of happiness and satiation so you can't really feel anxiety or like motivation or anticipation when you are feeling satiated it's relative to being happy in that specific moment whereas anxiety is more relative to like future thinking future worry b6 is also really important for the sex hormones and estrogen balance which is more related to depression and we're going to get into more of that in a later episode but Basically, one of the main symptoms that I see with people who have underlying anxiety or panic attacks is like there is zero libido happening. Like it is just not happening at all. Um, Anybody who has come to me, any of my clients that deal with anxiety, libido is not even on the table. And I actually resonate with this a lot. Like I'm somebody who really struggled to get my libido back after I had the adrenal crash, where I used to be somebody who was like super sexually active, and I literally had no desire. And a lot of that came down to just my body basically using up B vitamins so quickly, like just burning through them. The next B vitamin I want to talk about is niacin. So that's B3 and niacin is actually necessary to ensure that tryptophan won't get sidetracked from serotonin production. So B6 basically converts to tryptophan and then to serotonin and niacin which is so important for so many things but when niacin is in short supply tryptophan is going to get converted to niacin instead of serotonin to meet the body's needs because niacin is so important therefore serotonin production is going to suffer and so do your moods so for those of you who are taking like SSRIs where, you know, your body is just giving you a ser- it's a serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it's basically holding serotonin in like the neuronal dock, if you will, um, longer before it gets like reuptaked basically um that's not going to help like that's not going to stop the cycle of niacin being converted or tryptophan being converted to niacin you're not going to be able to produce any more serotonin and we still have a deficiency in niacin and tryptophan so this is why a lot of the time ssris are not effective and because it doesn't really get to the root cause so, Dr. Michael Lesser, who's a fantastic California-based psychiatrist, states that the first notable symptoms of ni- niacin deficiency is completely and totally psychological. So, the symptoms are fearful, apprehensive, suspicious, excessive worry, gloomy, downcast, angry, and depressed outlook. If you show up to your doctor's office with those symptoms, like likely you're going to be put on an antidepressant or on an anti-anxiety medication and really you could just take a B vitamin, like not in all cases. I'm definitely not generalizing. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. Please seek help from at least a professional. Um, whether you work with me personally, or you, you uh, go to another holistic practitioner or you just consult your doctor, never just like take things or ta- like stop taking your medication or take other things on your own. Uh, however, most of the psychological like mental and psychological issues can be avoided. If we make sure that we're not deficient in these B vitamins. So now we're gonna talk about pantothenic acid, which is B5, and in multiple studies done by Dr. Robert Picker, who's again another California psychiatrist, B5 has helped both rats and humans adjust to physically stressful situations. So in one study, an extra rich diet of B5 helped rodents, so mice, swim twice as long as those fed with just an average diet of B5. And in human studies, adequate intake of B5 allowed human men to swim for eight minutes in 48 degree Fahrenheit water. And what they did was they tested biometrics after that. So they had less of a drop in white blood cells and they excreted less uric acid, which by the way, are both signs of lower stress when they took B5 versus not taking B5. So b5 is pretty important and um, if you're somebody who engages in physical activity b5 is again really important for resiliency for physical stress okay moving on to vitamin c and vitamin c has been labeled the anti-stress hormone or the anti-stress vitamin although i would argue magnesium or b5 probably more so but anyways this has a lot to do with the fact that stress in itself is going to require you to step up your vitamin c requirements So first of all, vitamin C is one of three specific nutrients that are required to make cortisol. It's B5, zinc, and vitamin C. Secondly, vitamin C has a special feature which is going to counter the overactive stress response. So it's required for the conversion of dopamine to norepinephrine or noadrenaline, which are the two anti-stress hormones, otherwise known as a catecholamine. So vitamin C also helps in the production of adrenaline, which is another crucial hormone that is a part of the stress response. And you might be thinking at this point, like if we want to reduce stress, why are we providing the body with more nutrients to create stress hormones? Well, it's not the production of these stress hormones that lead to anxiety or intolerance to stress. It's the chronic release coupled with the lack of nutrients to support the response that can lead to this susceptibility in the nervous system. In other good news, vitamin c can also help to produce dopamine so having a little extra vitamin c available is not a bad thing and vitamin c is also water soluble which means that it's very easily excreted through the urine because it's used for so many other functions in the body like it's anti-inflammatory antifungal antibacterial antioxidant um it's antiviral it's literally anti-anti-anti-everything um the body uses a lot of it and then you basically pee the rest out every four hours so you want to be taking it taking it in a liposomal form or being ingesting it every four hours i don't have time for shit like that so i just take the liposomal c from NACA. i love it which i'm going to link up in the show notes in case you guys are interested and what it means to be liposomal is just that if it's water soluble when something is liposomal it's attached to a fat molecule so that now instead of it just being excreted, like it makes it fat-soluble. So fat-soluble stuff isn't just like excreted through the urine. It has to be digested and absorbed in a completely different way using bile, etc. So it stays, it actually gets into the cell. And remember that every single cell membrane is made out of this phospholipid bilayer, which is fat basically. So it's almost like it's the same, it's made of the same material. It's much easier for the cell to absorb it and accept it. We're gonna talk about magnesium now. So magnesium is is the real superstar of reducing anxiety and recovery from the stress response. I know I said that about the V vitamins and they're definitely linked to mental health, but like magnesium is actually the number one nutrient that everybody needs. And I've said this over and over and over and over again in pretty much every episode. So there was an article released in 1997 actually by some French French researchers that stated that somewhere between the hard driving behavior and the high strung tendencies of the type A personality lies a magnesium deficiency. That's a literal quote from the research study. So magnesium is the relaxation to every contraction in the body. So for every contraction, you need magnesium to relax it. And it's used for over 300 different metabolic reactions, so it's used up very quickly. And it's a very important part of hormone production. So it plays a big role in literally producing hormones, and it also plays a big role in detox. So women who tend to carry a lot of weight in their lower body, especially those with cellulite um, and estrogen dominance, it's usually a telltale sign of magnesium deficiency. And to make things worse, our soil is basically void of all magnesium. So it's really hard to get it from our food. Not to mention we lead these highly stressful lives with everything moving faster, quicker, 5G, 5G, day of delivery, <laughs> delivery. like everything is highly stimulating. It's just a lot for the body to handle. So for those of you who have ever had a debilitating anxiety or panic attacks, you'll know that it feels a lot like a heart attack. And that's what I thought was happening. I was like, there's something wrong with my heart. Um, magnesium deficiency is one of the key players that leads to high blood pressure and heart attack. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like a lot of high blood pressure is constriction of the blood vessels and arteries. And magnesium relaxes the blood vessels, allowing for fluid blood flow. So my mom had an extremely high blood pressure. I'm talking like 183 over 90. And I, we worked together for over two months. My mom is... Um, <laughs> My mom is a chef and so for pasta and like everything with so much oil is the only way that she knows how to cook and live and like dairy is the best thing that's ever happened to this world. So it's it's been, I've been really trying with my mom to correct her health for a long time and it's taken her basically almost a stroke to start to listen to me i'm like this is what i do for a living mom but i'm her daughter so she'll never listen to me but we ended up getting her blood pressure down to a very healthy 127 over 80 mostly 127 to 130 over 80 within just two months and all i did was add a hefty dose of magnesium so when you read the label of magnesium it's like take two a day maybe three no (laughs) like with my mom i'm giving her five to six sometimes eight Um, She's also somebody who suffers from cramps, like leg cramps overnight, so that's another really distinct sign that you are deficient in magnesium or potassium, but because she's on so many other medications, like a lot of these medications also um, deplete these magnesium stores, so it's you know, it's just kind of a, a cyclical cycle then, you know, you have high blood pressure, so you take the high blood pressure medication, which further depletes the magnesium level. So the high blood, high blood pressure increases, then you have to go up level and it depletes even more. So I had her basically on a very high dose of magnesium and how you know what the right dose is for you is you basically, the upper tolerance of magnesium, like you'll hit bowel tolerance before it'll hurt you. So basically you want to take magnesium as many until you shit your pants or until you go to the bathroom. And then right before that dose is your upper tolerance of magnesium. And as you start to replete the stores, your upper tolerance might um, start to decrease. Like you'll start to replenish the body and then it might get lower and lower. So I never actually reached bowel, bowel tolerance with my mom because it would freak her out if she took like 20 pills of magnesium, though taking all of her medications does not bother her. So anyways, double standards, but That's what you would want to do if you're somebody who's interested in figuring out what your magnesium uh, requirements are. The same French researcher that, um, that conducted the study on um, type A personalities in magnesium is uh, basically conducted another study of 42 healthy young um, type A individuals and 37 type Bs. And they measured the stress response and byproducts of magnesium and catecholamines in the urine of both groups. So the type A's had five times the release of these substances in their urine. Additionally, magnesium levels in the red blood cells dropped by about 80% in the type A's. And if you know anything about um, biometrics or doing blood work, you never really want to test magnesium in the, in the cells, I mean in the blood. It should be in the cells, right? So that level doesn't mean too much to me. However, the excretion, the byproducts of magnesium in the urine is really what shines here. So the takeaway from this study for me anyways, was that both groups were exposed to the same stressors, right? It was the response of the individual that related to the overreaction and deficiency of magnesium. So this should even further reinforce that your thoughts and your mindset specific situations can alter the way your body responds to them which is like literally my entire practice but I've been a type a my whole life (laughs) basically constant mental chatter worrying all about performance everything has to be done fast everything has to be done in a specific way whereas I have a lot of people around me like my partner my husband he's definitely a type b like he is very like yeah I'm just gonna sit down for a second read this magazine nobody I'm not performing heart surgery here and like it makes me anxious even just watching him do that because I'm like uh hello we have shit to do Um, but you know there's a lot that i could learn from that right because in the end we always end up getting everything done and there there was no urgency i just like depleted my magnesium and b vitamin stores for no reason at all so for all of you fellow type a's out there it starts with the thought Um, the reality here is the type a individuals are the ones who tend to overanalyze and excessively worry about things And just like magnesium can constrict the blood vessels in our cardiovascular system, it does the same in our nervous system. So constricting the neurons in the peripheral nerves, nerves leading to a high-strung environment and replaying that danger, fight or flight signal, way more often than necessary. There was another study done by a German scientist at the Federal Health Office in Berlin um, that was done with five groups of rats. And they were testing the effects of continuous noise on magnesium levels. I love this study. They, the study concluded that the continuous noise leads to a decrease in cellular magnesium content and an increase in calcium content. So the reason, one of the reasons why I love the is because they actually did measure cellular magnesium content, which is the right way to go. Um, and they look at the ratio between magnesium and calcium. So we haven't really talked much about calcium and its channels. Um, but calcium is one of the carrier molecules that's required for stimulating any nerve transmission in particular. And actually when calcium is too low, then, um, mental health disorders tend to rise. And so I'm not saying that we need to have low calcium or high calcium. It's more about the ratio that it's in with magnesium. So going back to the study, the longer and louder the noise levels, the greater decrease in magnesium levels, which would create that off balance ratio. Right? And then the study was actually then done on adult humans with a very similar result. So just to, yeah, just to be clear, like calcium is also required to reduce anxiety. It's more about the ratio of calcium to magnesium. This is why when magnesium levels drop, calcium increases and we develop more constriction in the blood vessels and the nervous system becomes overstimulated. And as for dosing for magnesium, obviously we're still talking about magnesium. Um, but as for dosing, my, and my favorite brands are many types of magnesium. Like I've mentioned this before in a really good rants episode, I believe. Uh, so for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, there's magnesium citrate, there's magnesium oxide, magnesium three and eight bisglycinate, glycinate, and ionic magnesium. Magnesium citrate is really specific to the bowels. So um, if you're somebody who struggles with constipation, that's a constriction, right? So magnesium citrate is going to relax the bowels, so you can have a proper bowel movement. Magnesium oxide is garbage. Don't bother buying it or using it. It like can't be absorbed at all. Magnesium eight is my favorite. Um, uh, magnesium eight is very specific to the nervous system. So if you're somebody dealing with anxiety or fibromyalgia or any type of like over-excessive worry thoughts, magnesium three in 8 is probably my favorite one for that. Also, migraines. Magnesium 3-8 works very well. bisglycinate is a really well-rounded magnesium. It's pretty well absorbed. It's really good for like the muscles and the bowels and the nervous system. It just does a little bit of everything. Magnesium glycinate—it just means that it's more bioavailable, so it's it's very absorbable. And then magne- ionic magnesium is the most absorbable magnesium because. All minerals in the body need to be ionized to be absorbed. And I talked about this in the digestion episode. So one of the roles of the hydrochloric acid in our, in our stomach is to ionize minerals so we can absorb them. And when we're just taking a supplement, sometimes we don't produce stomach acid. So the ionic magnesium is already ionized. It's just ready to go. My favorite, obviously, I said is magnesium three and eight, and I tend to use NACA. NACA is getting a lot of shout outs today. I tend to use NACA or Organica. I really liked this one brand by Innovite. Innovite was the brand, um, but they stopped making it. So I don't know if you can find it, but it was a powder versus a capsule. Moving on to trauma, so I kind of already alluded to a lot of the concepts in trauma, and the topic of trauma is honestly in a, a very large episode in itself, so I'm not going to dive too deep here, but if you want to know more about how trauma gets encoded in the nervous system, check out the episode titled The Brain and the Body. I talk about it a bit there. But essentially, traumatic experiences can be both big T trauma or small T trauma. Like Big T trauma is like a car crash, um, parents dying, sexual assault small t trauma is more like bullying rejection being told no even self-rejection so every time you look in the mirror if you're like fuck i'm so disgusting like that's multi-trauma you are like rejecting yourself on a daily basis right um and that stuff really encodes in the nervous system because it's 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 viewed as a threat to your survival in any case any type of trauma is going to encode itself very deeply in the nervous system and it's one of the easiest ways to create a new program a new subconscious program So like I mentioned before, there are only three ways to change or rewire the subconscious, which is repetition, hypnosis, and trauma. And some things are so traumatic that the nervous system changes immediately. But in any case, trauma is always a threat to your survival, whether someone tells you you're not good enough or you have an invasive surgery. Both events threaten the nervous system, and this threat is a threat to your survival, so it's going to release the the fight-or-flight response. And the brain can rewire itself and create a new neuronal network that plays this fight or flight response on repeat until the individual truly feels safe again, which can take honestly years. Some really great treatments for trauma will include EMDR therapies, fantastic, cranial sacral therapy, vagus, any vagus nerve exercises. So you can do those on your own or you can find some videos on YouTube. And of course, my favorite is like psychedelic therapy, LSD or psilocybin. I would be not telling you the whole story if we didn't talk about conventional treatments and I'm going to try my best to do this in a very unbiased way, but I'm also, this is my podcast, so I'm going to give you my opinion because it's a professional one. So I obviously need to talk about some of these conventional treatments and in Western medicine they're called anxiolytic treatments, which are also known as benzodiazepines like Ativan or Valium, Xanax, Librium, Clonopin, or their commercial names and some of them are extremely effective, but they come at a cost, right? So the side effects are often severe and dependency is very high for these things. I'm a huge proponent of Western medicine. Like I really truly believe that Western medicine is one of the most fascinating and life-saving industries, specifically if it's an acute situation. So if you're having a heart attack, like please go to the hospital. Don't go to your herbalist. For all acute conditions, we are so lucky to have doctors and Western medicine. But for anything chronic, that's really where they shit the bed, to be honest. Like, these anxiolytic medications are not root, root cause treatments. They're a band aid approach and they come with negative side effects, and it's just not worth it for me. If you're working with a progressive medical doctor who's willing to monitor you to go on them for a temporary time and help you and encourage you to wean off of them, then it's no problem then they actually can be extremely effective, especially for people who have panic attacks. But it's often very hard to do so without withdrawal and without somebody literally walking you through it. So most people who use these medications feel a bit of relief, um, especially with with anxiety, let's say with chronic anxiety. Like you are going to feel relief with anxiety or depression, but it's still kind of (laughs) there. Like, I don't know if you've ever taken this stuff. I've been on a few uh, mental health, uh, medications before but you know like it does kind of you just kind of mute the symptoms but it's still there i watched this tony robbins um episode one time and he was like raise your hand if you've like ever been medicated for depression and he was like now put down your hand if you still have if you still have if the depression went away and like everybody's hand was still up so i think that that really just tells you how well these things work and it's not because western medicine doesn't know what they're talking about it's just that the brain is so complex and when we want to address some of these symptoms it you have to go to a root cause and unfortunately taking anything whether it's a supplement or a medication is not really getting down to the root cause unless the root cause is straight up actually a deficiency which then you have to be like well why are you deficient right. So if you're dealing with anxiety because you have a pathogen, or a food intolerance, or you had a traumatic experience, these medications aren't going to address any of those problems. And if you're and if you're experiencing deficiencies, a lot of these medications will deprive you or deplete these nutrients even more. So when we talk about holistic treatments, again, it's really important that you get to the root cause, because these can also be seen as a band-aid approach, unless the only reason for your anxiety is a deficiency, in what you're taking, like if, you, if your only reason for anxiety is a deficiency in niacin or B3, then taking B3 will neutralize that deficiency. But you have to ask, like, why is there a deficiency in B3? It's really highly unlikely that you'll have a deficiency for no reason at all. And that's why you want to work with a practitioner who will know the right questions to ask you. Like, my intake form is massive. And then we also do an entire hour, sometimes hour and a half of intake assessment so I can get all the information that I need from you. Because it's not a simple, just like, it's not just a one experience thing. It's everything is accumulative. And ideally, once you get to the root cause of the imbalance, you're going to address it in a way that's going to restore the body back to homeostasis or balance, not just temporarily alleviate the symptoms. So I'm going to tell you about some of my favorite supplements that you can implement that will help to replace some of those nutritional, nutritional deficiencies, but also help to regulate the nervous system. Again, we do want to be looking at the root cause, but there's lots of things that we can do holistically that tend to alleviate some of the symptoms and provide relief and then also put you in the direction of recovery. So the first one I want to talk about is the omegas, specifically omega three or the omega three to six ratio. We've actually talked about this one many times in my podcast before, because it's so important and it's very closely related to mental health disorders. We've talked about it in relation to depression, but it does a very similar thing for anxiety. So first of all, the omegas are the healthy fats. So these are the essential fatty acids. They're essential because the body does not make them on their own, which means we have to derive them from the foods that we eat. So with the omega-3, it's very anti-inflammatory. So again, when we reference things like brain inflammation and frauctalcan in the brain, the omega-3s is going to help to bring down that brain inflammation so that the brain can function properly. The other thing is, the brain is literally made up of 60%, it's like 60% fat. So uh, all, on every single neuron, we have this covering called the myelin sheath, and the myelin sheath is made out of healthy fats. So the omega-3s are literally going to provide the building blocks to build up the, the brain, which is going to be really beneficial for nerve transmission and also just the functionality of the brain in general. The other area that's important is that the omega-3s are obviously, their fats, and the fats are the precursor to most of our hormones, so specifically the sex hormones and the steroidogenic hormones. So the omegas are a really good place to start. The only one that I recommend is the Canprev Omega Pro, one-to-one ratio and what one-to-one means is it's epa and dha so it's equally epa and dha and epa is the anti-inflammatory aspect of omega-3s whereas dha is the brain building aspect of the of the omega-3 so i do like the balanced one-to-one ratio some people who are working in the medical health field and sometimes with very specific clients i'll do the five to one ratio so i'll do high dha first um if we're working with mental health stuff Uh, in five times more than the epa and i'll do the five to one ratio for like an extended period of time so i usually do it for about a month and then i go back to balance with the one-to-one or i'll start with one-to-one and bring everything up to balance and then i'll do five to one and then i'll do the opposite one to five but again that is very specific to certain cases and that's not something i expect you guys to know so it's always just best to start with the one-to-one ratio Okay, the next supplement to mention is L-theanine. So L-theanine is this amazing molecule which is going to increase the alpha brainwave state. Now, this alpha brainwave state is like passive relaxation. So this is a state that you would be in when you were starting meditation or when you were awake but relaxed. It's one level above Theta state and theta state is where you would want to be when you are in a hypnosis state. Um, so, this is the state when you're most suggestible. This is where like the learning happens, and that's the state right before sleep. So, beta is when you're super, super awake, and then alpha is right under that. So, alpha would be when we are awake, but we are rested. So L-theanine is a water-soluble, non-protein amino acid, which is most commonly found in things like green tea and in some mushrooms. So this is one of the reasons why when you have green tea, although it's caffeinated and sometimes even more highly caffeinated than things like coffee, it still has that kind of like relaxing tendency. And so you don't get that same kind of spike when you're drinking regular coffee. With green tea, you're gonna feel that boost of energy, but the onset is gonna be significantly more balanced. So it's just, You're just going to kind of slowly ride the wave of having more energy. L-theanine has been widely studied for its ability to encourage wakeful relaxation without sedation. So this is one of my most favorite parts about L-theanine because with most of the other herbs or supplements that you're going to take that are going to put you in a relaxed state, there is a sedative quality to them. Whereas with L-theanine, it's not going to sedate you. You're going to be still very wakeful, but you're going to have this relaxed state and that's a very easy way to explain also the green tea phenomena where you have more energy or you have that of energy but you are still quite relaxed l is also thought to work by decreasing these excitatory brain chemicals which are going to contribute to things like stress and anxiety and simultaneously it's going to increase chemicals that encourage a sense of calm so we're decreasing the stress hormones and increasing things like gaba And it's even been known to lower things like stress-related blood pressure and heart rate. So it's one of my favorite molecules and my favorite interventions for anxiety and stress. And the recommendation I would use for L-theanine is I really like the Canprev L-theanine with magnesium because I really like the combination together because the magnesium is also going to bring a state of relaxation. Now, there isn't enough magnesium in that product for that to be just like your daily total. You would still need to supplement with additional magnesium, in my opinion, and then the other supplement you can do is you can supplement with GABA, especially in combination with inositol. So myo inositol is a supplement. It's actually um, a glu—it's a type of sugar that works specifically for polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it's going to help to regulate blood sugar imbalances, and when you combine GABA and myo-inositol it has this really relaxing effect on the nervous system myo-inositol in general is going to have a a balancing effect in for moods which is oftentimes with pcos there's like very erratic moods related to blood sugar imbalances so when you combine myo-inositol with GABA and remember GABA is that neurotransmitter that has a relaxing effect on the nervous system in combination with myo-inositol it tends to increase the efficacy of either one and it's going to regulate blood sugar, which may be a trigger to these panic attacks. I use Genestra, myo and I use the AOR GABA. The next supplement you can use, which is actually an herb, is CAVA or CAVA CAVA. And I'm going to be totally transparent here. I almost never use this one in my practice because this is an herb that is kind of sedative and it's really beneficial to help people with insomnia so when i'm addressing insomnia i do like to again go down to the root cause and i just find you can build a dependency with herbs just as much as you can with sleep medication so i tend to be very skeptical or i i proceed with hesitancy when recommending an herb for sleep or to calm down the nervous system The next supplement, obviously the B vitamins. So we talked in length about some of the specific ones that are really important, but the best thing to do is just get an overall B complex. The only one that I ever recommend is the AOR advanced B complex. AOR is also getting a big shout out this episode, uh, but that's because a lot of people are not MTHFR methylators, which means that they actually do not methylate or they don't activate B vitamins in their body from their food. And so if you're taking a supplement of B vitamins that's not already methylated, then it's just gonna be a waste of money. So the advanced, the AOR Advanced B Complex, everything is it's in its active form. So that's the one that I would use. And then the other important supplement that I mean, or a nutrient that's important to talk about is calcium, but I never ever supplement with calcium and I do not recommend it mainly because calcium is very easy to derive from your food. So that should be the first place that you're going and not through like dairy. You don't need to go to dairy. Calcium is super high in things like almonds and tofu and broccoli. And so there's lots of other places that we can get calcium and calcium is kind of like a stupid nutrient. And I mean that in a way where like, it's not very smart. So when you ingest calcium, it doesn't know where to go. And so when you take calcium, it needs all these cofactors to get actual calcium into the bones or to get it into the nervous system to behave as a, um, as a facilitator for nerve transmission so one of the the cofactors are vitamin d magnesium and k2 and if you don't have if you don't supplement calcium in relation to all of those things it, it you you risk calcium basically hanging out in the nooks and crannies or getting stuck in different parts of your bodies and calcifying the joints or kidney stones which i actually see very frequently in my practice so i never recommend supplementing with calcium There are a bunch of other herbs that I'm going to mention, but I'm not going to go into much detail about. So these herbs are all adaptogens. And what adaptogens do is that they help you adapt. So they are really good for um, resiliency against stress. And some of my favorites are rhodiola, ashwagandha, linden flower, and lemon balm. I should caution you ashwagandha tends to be quite stimulating and ashwagandha also works on the thyroid. So if you're someone with hypothyroid ashwagandha is really great. If you're someone with hyper, it's probably not the best recommendation for you. Um, the other one, lemon balm. So lemon balm is really good for hyper um thyroid but if you have hypo it's it, it has a tendency to slow the thyroid down so with lemon balm and ashwagandha and actually most of the herbs that are going to work on the adrenal system the thyroid will have it will they will have an effect on the thyroid as well because those two endocrine systems work very closely together when whenever we see the thyroid being depressed or um or being hyperactive it the, the root of it is usually an adrenal issue so if i'm ever working with somebody who has like hypo or hyperthyroid we'll work the adrenals first or else it won't really do anything okay that was a lot of information some of it was super relevant and some of it was just icing on the cake and again if you're suffering with anxiety there's always a root cause okay no one is destined to suffer this isn't like the cross you bear that you're just supposed to be anxious this is that's actually not Uh, um, that's not your journey right it's just something that you're dealing with so you can always book a free consultation with me um, and you can be sure that I'm going to look at you holistically from a functional medicine perspective from a neuroscience and psychology perspective and I often use hypnotherapy in conjunction with psychotherapy because it's killer for anxiety hypnotherapy is so great for anxiety and um, if it's not me then just make sure that you're working with a practitioner who has experience in this and understands the body as a whole I also want to let you know that I'm continuing my giveaway for the podcast. So if you would like a free, it's usually one hour to like 90 minute session, depending on how long it takes me to get through your intake, because it can be very lengthy, which is a $350 value. All you have to do is head to Apple podcasts and leave an honest review before you send it. Just be sure to take a picture and send it to my email, which is jordana at the mindfulclinic.com, And I'm going to also link all of this up in the show notes. I also wanted to mention that I've been receiving so much positive feedback about this podcast. So to everyone who's reached out, I want to say that I see you. I literally see and hear every single one of you. And it's because of you that I am motivated to continue sharing. So thank you so much for all the positive feedback. And I'm so glad that this is resonating with you guys. Once again, don't forget to like and subscribe. Subscribing keeps this information free and available to everybody and recommend it to those who may need it. All right, guys, I will see you next week on another episode of Head to Heal. Have a good one.